welcome to another Coffee and Heroes podcast. It's a brand new podcast I'm bringing to you now. This is going to be the A Movie A Day podcast. I'm hoping to do this for the whole of 2021. Given that we're starting off in lockdown, we're always looking for new projects, new things to focus on, as well as the, the, the business itself. And as much as I'm a massive comic fan, I'm also a massive movie fan. And it's not just superhero movies. I mean, I, I've had a long time interest in movies, going right back to the days of Barry Norman on BBC One. Look it up, kids. Uh, when he used to do all his film reviews, I, I love the movies of the 30s, 40s and 50s. You know, Frank Capra, Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles. I love the stuff 60s, 70s, 80s onwards when Scorsese was starting and Francis Ford Coppola and Roman Polanski and, and so forth. Then you have the over-the-top 80s, you have some great movies in the 90s with the indie sort of movie starting to hit big, and then 2000s onwards where, you know, arguably CGI takes over, but there's still great movies along the way. So I thought what would be fun to do is, being involved in another lockdown, you know, we've got a little bit more spare time on our hands, and what I wanted to do was watch a movie a day. And each week I'm going to release a podcast with seven movie reviews, one from each day. It's going to be different from week to week, you know, there's going to be some weeks where what I do is start off with one movie and then do a six degrees of separation type thing, that's what I've done for the first week. There's going to be weeks where it's watching all the Batman movies back to back, there's going to be the inevitable watching of all the Marvel movies all in a row, there's going to be the inevitable James Bond marathon, there's going to be lots of fun along the way and, and a great variety of movies as well, so hopefully as well as... Uh, going through these movies I can introduce you guys to some movies you might not have even heard of maybe help you discover a, a new movie or two along the way as I said for the first week what I wanted to do was a, a sort of six degrees of separation thing and what I did was I chose a movie first of all for the first of January that the reason it was chosen was because someone rather graciously bought me the uh, Mondo vinyl soundtrack for this movie over Christmas you know, I suppose you can add vinyl collecting to my comic collecting and, and movie collecting, I suppose. But really great soundtrack. I had a listen to it on, I think it was the 29th or 30th. And the mu music just really stuck with me. So I thought what I would do is then start with this movie. And then each time there'll be a link to whatever the next movie is. What I'm also going to do just for a little bit of fun as well is just to set up each review. There's going to be a quote from the movie at the start. There'll never be any spoilers in this quote. It's just going to be either be some quotable dialogue or it's going to be something that maybe gives you a, a hint of the plot, that kind of thing. So, January 1st, where do we start? The aforementioned soundtrack I listened to was to a movie called Knives Out. It's a weird case from the start. A case with a hole in the centre. A donut. Knives Out is a 2019 whodunit which serves somewhat as a palate cleanser for director Rian Johnson after a sojourn to a galaxy far, far away in The Last Jedi. And for me, it was an absolute triumphant return to genre filmmaking for a director I've been watching ever since his debut in 2005 with a great movie called Brick. Knives Out is a delight of a movie, which is all the more pressing a statement when you consider it's about the grisliest act of all, murder. Successful crime novelist Harlan Thrombey is found dead in his study in the opening minutes of our narrative, with the local police quickly establishing his death as a suicide. The doors were all locked from the inside, everyone's whereabouts are accounted for and backed up by witnesses, and his throat was slit in, in a manner consistent with self-infliction. Open and shut case, right? 
Well, obviously not, or we wouldn't have a movie. So why then has the world-famous detective Benoit Blanc been mysteriously hired by an anonymous donor to investigate the case? Knives Out is just a great time at the movies. You know, the cast are all clearly having fun, none more so than the -the over-the-top, treading dangerously close to hammy performance of Daniel Craig as the larger-than-life Benoit Blanc. I'll be honest, because of his profile as James Bond, the thick southern accent was a little off-putting in the beginning. But a third of the way into the movie, it just clicks and you buy into it. Every single scene is elevated when Craig is around. That's not to take anything away from the rest of the cast. Anna Darmas is Harlan's nurse and arguably his closest friend. You know, she's a ball of emotion and guilt that she didn't see how Harlan was feeling. And therefore wasn't able to prevent his death. Harlan's family, who all think they're next in line to claim his fortune and his will, are a delicious mix. Thoroughly horrible people in their own ways, but they're nevertheless magnetic. And... You can't help but be drawn to them. You know, you've got Jamie Lee Curtis, Don Johnson, Michael Shannon, Tony Collette. And in particular, a cast against type Chris Evans. They're all wonderful in their own sort of horrible ways. The music, as I said before, is a standout. You know, it's from Johnson's longtime collaborator, his cousin, Nathan Johnson. Fantastic soundtrack and highly, highly recommended. But the final word has to go to the writer-director himself. You know, Rian Johnson, he keeps the many pieces to the puzzle moving effortlessly. Never gets bogged down in exposition or character, but somehow perfectly balances both. You know, it's funny where it needs to be, it's dark in the moments that call for it, and and it's always playful. This was actually my second viewing, you know, I had seen it before and thoroughly enjoyed it, and despite remembering the who, it was watching the how and why that proved most thrilling. And of course, with any movie like this, the inevitable, aha, monologue that accompanies any good whodunit was brilliantly delivered by Daniel Craig, who steals the show in the final act. Thoroughly cracking movie, 9 out of 10. So as I said, I was going to do a 6 Degrees of Separation for this one, and it was of course directed by Rian Johnson, as is Day 2, Looper. This time travel crap, it just fries your brain like an egg. You know, Looper was a movie I looked forward to for a long time when it was first announced. I chatted before about Rian Johnson's Brick uh, movie, which was his debut, and it was one of my favourite movies from the, the 2000s. It was essentially Chinatown set in a high school. Very unique, and also one of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's first uh, performances as he transitioned from television. Uh, I believe it was Third Rock from the Sun. His second movie, Rian Johnson, is, is was also great. You know, It was a movie called The Brothers Bloom. It was more Ruffalo and Adrian Brody. It was a con man movie which moved all across Europe with a deliciously barmy performance from Rachel Weisz. So his first two movies were very classic Hollywood and within well-established genres. With Looper, he was going into uncharted waters with a time travel science fiction story. I always think time travel is very hard to get right. You know, there's you can count on maybe one hand the, the amount of movies that get it right. Back to the Future did it justice, as did The Terminator 1 and 2, but for me anyway, it's not a, a subgenre overloaded with classics. But you can definitely add Looper to that list, you know, this is a fantastic movie. Swimming with ideas, beautifully shot, visually interesting, and with great performances from Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Bruce Willis, Emily Blunt, and a clearly enjoying himself, Jeff Daniels. Plot-wise, it's actually relatively simple, you know, time travel hasn't been invented in the present, but it has been 30 years from now. There are assassins in our present called loopers. They kill people who have been sent back in time and there's because there's no trace of them there and therefore it's a clean kill. The loopers themselves are paid well for this and they live a really good life but the only downside is that at some point they will kill their future selves 
and as a reward get one final big uh, payday and then they can enjoy the next 30 years of their life but then they're aware of their own mortality you know you know that they know they're going to die 30 years time so to speak so what happens if one of the present day loopers can't kill his future self and then there are two versions of the same person existing in the present there are far too many other subplots to get into here but you can see how johnson has been massively influenced by some of the best science fiction movies i already mentioned the terminator but there's clearly you know akira's fingerprints all over this and there's a there's also a ton of originality on top of those uh, aforementioned classics you know and that originality it's becoming more and more scarce in present day hollywood certainly for you know bigger budget movies if you haven't seen this yet, I highly recommend doing so. Just make sure you give it your full attention. You know, this is not a, a movie to sit on your phone or check Facebook or, if you know, look out the window or whatever. But, uh, you know, give it your full attention and you'll be highly rewarded for doing so. It's 9 out of 10 movie all day long. So, Looper starred Bruce Willis, who is also in Day 3, The Last Boy Scout. Okay, what would Joe do at a time like this? He'd kill everybody and smoke some cigarettes. What I always do when uh, I'm starting my reviews, I always have a look at movie posters. You know, I always focus on the international ones. I have a pretty good memory for, for movie posters. And then, of course, they then become, you know, the DVD case art or Blu-ray or, or whatever. But I'm always curious how movies are marketed internationally. You know, how do they differentiate from the UK and US posters? And you come across some crazy ones and some awesome ones as well. But it would appear... In the late 80s, early 90s, all you needed was a picture of Bruce Willis holding a gun in order to sell a movie. Because the Japanese poster is exactly the same as the US poster in this case. For me, this is one of Willis's underrated movies. And, and a lot of people actually forget it even exists. And that's surprising given that it's you know it's got a great pedigree. It's directed by Tony Scott, you know who did Top Gun, True Romance. Produced by Joel Silver, who did The Matrix, Commando. Written by Shane Black, you know Lethal Weapon. Iron Man 3, and stars Willis fresh off of Die Hard. It's edgy, it's funny, it's got great action, and it's cool as hell. The plot admittedly is a relic of its time. You know, the owner of a football team is trying to bribe a lot of senators to legalize gambling in a bid to save the sport. You know, attendances are falling, TV ratings are falling. Maybe if people can bet on the game, they'll be more interested. You know, how, how quaint the notion this is in these modern times of betting apps and in-play. But it does have a few twists and turns involving Willis's character's past with a senator and a topsy-turvy relationship with his wife and kid. Throw in Marlon Wayans as his comedic sidekick playing a washed-up football star. And you have all the ingredients for a solid, entertaining buddy cop movie, essentially. And that's what it delivers. It's also easy to forget just how funny it is. You know, the script is razor-sharp and it allows Willis to play in his comedic delivery. You know, a lot of people forget that Bruce Willis, before he became the big action star, was actually known more for his comedy. You know, he was in a, a TV show with Sybil Shepherd called Moonlighting. And with this, he then, he, he gets to go back to that, you know, nonchalant, wisecracking, and it really, really works. Mayans also throw, throws in a good turn as Jimmy Dix. And also look out for Hal Berry in an early role as a stripper, calm down at the back there, with dirt on some powerful people. Underrated movie and genuinely one of Bruce Willis's best. 8 out of 10. So The Last Boy Scout is written by Shane Black, who also wrote Day 4, The Long Kiss Goodnight. I never did one thing right in my life. You know that? Not one. That takes skill. A guilty pleasure a movie if ever there was one. 
You know, the 90s were a different time in Hollywood. The decade was filled to the brim with over-the-top action movies, snappy dialogue, mismatched buddy movies, and the screenwriter was keen. And the undoubted keen was Shane Black. Fresh off of Lethal Weapon, The Last Boy Scout, and even a job as a script polisher of Arnie's last action hero, Black was able to sell the story of an amnesic spy for $4 million. Just let that sink in. To paraphrase a line from Black's own script for The Last Boy Scout, that's a lot of zeros. Gina Davis plays Samantha Kane, a small-town teacher with a daughter. Eight years ago, she woke up on the side of a river, two months pregnant, and with no memory of who she was and how she got there. Over the years, she's hired private detectives, but no one has gotten any closer to the truth. Just as she's made peace with never knowing and being comfortable in her new life, sleazy sleuth Mitch Hennessy, brilliantly played by Samuel L. Jackson, comes across some information that may just point to some answers. The two team up, hit the road, and along the way find out that Samantha used to be a government spook who went by the name of Charlie. The government had assumed she died eight years ago and now that she has resurfaced alive and well, they set out to fix that and deny themselves any embarrassment or repercussions for losing an asset. What follows is a 90s over-the-top action movie with some great set pieces, that trademark snappy Shane Black dialogue and some great performances. Brian Cox turns up as an ally to Charlie and enjoys hamming it up and delivering some of the best lines of the movie. Gina Davis is the movie's anchor and her turn from housewife to spy is believable. But for me, this is Samuel L. Jackson's show. It's no surprise that he once went on Jimmy Fallon uh, and said that this was his favourite role. He steals the movie every single time he turns up. Switch off your brain, grab a bucket of popcorn and just enjoy. 7 out of 10. So as I said, for me, The Long Kiss Goodnight was stolen by Samuel L. Jackson and he is also in Day 5, Pulp Fiction. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Hot off the success of Reservoir Dogs, one of the most vital and exciting film debuts in years, everyone was awaiting Quentin Tarantino's sophomore effort with fervent anticipation. There were those who were excited to see what he was doing next, and those who were waiting for him to fail to dismiss him as a one-hit wonder. Absolutely no chance. Pulp Fiction is, in my own humble opinion of course, quite simply one of the best movies ever made. It is effortlessly stylish, filled to the brim with memorable characters, memorable dialogue, and has often been imitated but never bettered so many times since. The movie itself follows three separate intertwining tales which seem like they've been ripped out of a 1940s noir paperback. The boxer who refuses to throw a fight, the employee who has to entertain his boss's wife without falling for her, the hitmen who have to clean up once a job goes wrong. They're all well-known tropes, but the movie never goes in the direction you think it will. It always throws a curveball and keeps you on the edge of your seat. You know, it's such an interesting movie as well because it's simultaneously a love letter to the golden age of Hollywood. You know, think of the cars, the retro diner, the name-checking of Hollywood stars as waiters and waitresses, how the characters dress. But it's very much a modern movie, even nearly three decades later. It has the non-linear narrative, it's larger-than-life characters, endlessly quotable dialogue, a hell of a cast and a masterpiece of a soundtrack. Reservoir Dogs had a great soundtrack. Pulp Fiction had a, has a great soundtrack. This would become a Tarantino staple for many years to come. His, his soundtracks were always as sort of feverishly anticipated as his movies. While it wasn't completely snubbed at the Oscars, you know, it did take home the best uh, screenplay Oscar. It was a movie deserving of best picture. 
But I guess a movie that has a cop raping a crime boss in the back of a second-hand store was never going to beat a movie about a mentally challenged man working his way through American history. 10 out of 10. Pulp Fiction features Uma Thurman, who stars in Day 6, Kill Bill, Volume 1. So, when do we do this? That depends. When do you want to die? Six years away from the spotlight after his third movie, Jackie Brown. And Jackie Brown was an interesting one for Tarantino because it was the first time he had adapted someone else's work. You know, it was based on an Elmore Leonard book. But with this one, Quentin Tarantino returned writing the script, returned with a vengeance, with a movie about, well, revenge. Tarantino's always been a cinephile and each of his movies are always massively influenced by genres or specific time periods in Hollywood. For Kill Bill, it was a massive debt to the Asian Kung Fu classics of the 70s and 80s. When it was initially announced that this was going to be a three-hour action epic bloodbath, everyone was understandably excited. Then business came into it, the movie had a huge budget, and Harvey Weinstein, yes, that one, decided that the only way he was guaranteed a return on his investment was if they split the movie in two. Essentially, he was charging you twice to see the full story. I'd genuinely be curious to know Tarantino's thoughts on this, you know, after all, he marketed Death Proof, which followed Kill Bill movies, as the fifth movie from Quentin Tarantino, and Kill Bill is still the fourth movie from Quentin Tarantino, so he clearly sees it as one movie. But I digress, you know, this was a viewing of just volume one, and it is a glorious movie. Relatively straightforward and well-worn story, you know, our hero is left for dead, recovers and sets out on a path to revenge, leaving a massive trail of bloody lifeless bodies behind them. But this is told with such style and panache that you can't help but feel it's fresh and vibrant. You know, it's chock full of great action. You know, it still amazes me to this day that this came out in a similar period to The Matrix Reloaded. And while Neo vs. 100 Agent Smiths looks like an old generation computer game, The Bride vs. The Crazy Idiot is a physical masterpiece where you feel every blow. You know, there's wonderful dialogue through this movie, that always great Tarantino-influenced soundtrack I chatted about, and amazing performances across the board. Lucy Liu is O'Reilly She, Daryl Hannah is L Driver, Vivica A. Fox is Vernicia Green, and the presence of Bill and Voice Only in this volume by David Carradine. They're all thoroughly horrible and violent people, and for what they did, they deserve to die. But this is clearly Uma Thurman's show. You know, this is an all-out action performance that belongs among the greats and female action leads. You feel the bride's pain, you know, her focus, her tenacity, her skill, and even more, her confidence. She's going to suffer a lot through this journey, but she is full of conviction that revenge will be hers. She has a plan, she does the surveillance required, and systematically takes them all down one by one. I think you can slide The Bride in between Ellen Ripley and Sarah Connor in the pantheon of movie badasses. She deserves her spot in full. Brilliantly directed by Tarantino, this was the first movie that showed he could do more than just great dialogue, crime and gangsters. The action in volume 1 is first rate, kinetic, inventive, brutal and beautiful. And for this reviewer, his most outright enjoyable movie. 10 out of 10. So moving on to day seven, there's only one natural pathway here and that's on to volume two. Day seven, Kill Bill, volume two. You and I have unfinished business. Baby, you ain't kidding. Given the non-linear structure of Kill Bill in general, you know, the fact that it's divided into chapters, you do have to wonder if the sequence we ended up with in volume one to volume two was the original plan. You know, I say this because once the decision was taken to split the movie in two, there had to be discussions about the tone that the separate volumes would take. 
If Volume 1 was the fast-paced, over-the-top action movie, Volume 2 is the more meditative, slow-paced, methodical installment. It's also a little more indulgent. Volume 2 finds the bride continuing her thirst for revenge by going after the remaining members of the Deadly Viper Squad. This includes Bud, a brilliant Michael Madsen, one of my favourite actors, thoroughly underrated, who is now a failed bouncer who lives out of a trailer. He is also revealed to be Bill's brother, and they do not get along. However, that won't stop him from hurting the bride for breaking his brother's heart. Then there is L Driver, Bill's new squeeze and the bride's rival. She also never received a Hattori Hanzo sword, and she's determined to get one by any means necessary. We also have sequences of the bride and Bill in happier times by the fire, some of the bride's training, which of course will come in handy to get her out of a jam, sequences of the bride asking for Bill's whereabouts, and of course Bill's infamous monologue about Superman. There is loads to like in this installment, but you can't help but feel it would have been a better movie if it was 30 minutes shorter. Do we really need the part where Bud gets reamed out by his boss? Do you really need the sequence with Bill's old friend giving up his location? I feel like there's a 10 out of 10 movie here if we were to get the original cut. Although it has been long rumoured that at some point Tarantino will release a full cut entitled The Whole Bloody Affair. Which I believe has played at a few festivals over the years. But this is definitely the weaker portion of the story if you do uh, split it into those two volumes. And it has a few shortcuts that weren't present in the first movie. You know the bride doesn't get the kill bud. She leaves Elle alive, though there's little doubt she will die. And even her final confrontation with Bill is somewhat of a letdown. Overall, her killing of O'Ren in Volume 1 remains the best set piece of this roaring rampage of revenge. Entertaining enough, as, as Tarantino always is, but this wouldn't crack his top 5 for me if we do take it as its own standalone movie. 7 out of 10. So that's going to bring an end to Week 1 of A Movie A Day. What I'm planning to do for next week is I'm going to start off a James Bond marathon. That's right, every single Bond movie along the way. And you never know, maybe at some point this year I may be able to slide in No Time to Die if it ever gets released. So, hope you enjoyed this first segment. Hope you'll rejoin me for my sojourn through the pantheon of James Bond movies. We kick things off next week with Dr. No. Hope you guys are staying safe out there. See you next time.